following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we come today, today and next week, really to reflect on the Christmas season and the Advent story, the story of the Nativity, the story of Jesus' birth. And uh, I've got to admit, as I come to preach at Christmas time, I kind of approach preaching at Christmas now with a bit of fear and trepidation because I've been preaching now at Shaw for regularly for about 11 years. And every one of those years, Christmas has happened. It's been amazing. Every, like consistently, every year, Christmas has just come around. And so every Christmas, uh, about this time in December or maybe slightly earlier, I come back again to the, uh, to the biblical stories about the birth of Jesus and the gospel stories and the other passages to do with the birth of Jesus and have another look at them and have another read of them. And I, I kind of have this feeling of what's new to say that hasn't been said and what's new to preach that hasn't already been preached. And of course, the answer is, in a sense, nothing, right? I mean, these, the story is not changed in 2,000 years. And so in one sense... What we need to do this time of year is hear the story again, same story, and marvel and just be amazed at what God has done for us and just allow the story to be heard and, and reheard. But I'm also amazed at the way that each year there's something in the, in the stories of Jesus' birth and around the birth of Jesus. and there's, there's, there's some, There'll always be something that God just reveals afresh or just puts his finger on. You know, sometimes there's something that you just haven't seen before. Or sometimes a detail in one of the stories that maybe I have seen it before and it just kind of comes alive. Sometimes I think it's about where you are in life. And, you know, you can, have, you can have read passages in the Bible. You might have read a verse in the Bible lots and lots and lots of times. But you can just be in a particular space in your life, just in a season of life. And you can read that old familiar verse or passage and there's something. It's, it's like you're reading it for the first time. And it'll be the way that God just takes where you're at and just brings something out of the Scriptures for you in that moment. And so God always has more to show us, even from the old, old stories and, and stories that we know so well. God's always got more to teach us. He's always got more to show us. And so in one sense, we're hearing again the story of the miracle of Jesus' birth. In another sense, we should have these expectant hearts that God's always got more light and truth to break forth from His Word, right? So what I, I felt kind of drawn this year back to a couple of passages in the Old Testament, a couple of prophecies around uh, the birth of Jesus. And there's, there's many prophecies in the Old Testament about the birth of Jesus and uh, prophecies that were spoken and written hundreds of years before Jesus was born uh, concerning all kinds of things to do with the manner of his birth and the time and the place of his birth, the circumstances surrounding his birth. And this is one of the things that makes the birth of Jesus so miraculous is that he, he fulfilled all of these prophecies written hundreds of years before he was born, and he fulfilled them in ways that could never have been orchestrated by people. And so we're going to look today and next week, we're going to look at a couple of these prophecies in the book of Isaiah particularly. It's where many of the, the what we call messianic prophecies are based. And so the book of Isaiah, we'll look at one section this week, one section next week. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, that's where we're going to be based. And Holly is going to come and read this passage for us. Thank you, Holly. You may have caught up with the news this week that uh, Donald Trump has recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. 
and is planning to move the U.S. Embassy there in the next few years. And the re- that's controversial, and the reason it's controversial is because Jerusalem as a city is so contested and disputed between Israelis and Palestinians. On the Israeli side, Israelis claim Jerusalem as their capital. That's where the Israeli parliament is. That's where the seat of power is. On the Palestinian side, they also place great emphasis on Jerusalem, especially East Jerusalem. And they see that as an important space, an important place um, in the formation of a future Palestinian state. And so Jerusalem is this central piece in the ongoing dispute and conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, which is why this would be such a controversial move um, for the U.S. to do this. And you know, Jerusalem is such a unique city in that way. It has always been at the center of international conflict. It has always been a kind of central player in conflict, particularly between Israel and Palestine in modern times, modern decades. But going back hundreds and hundreds of years, going back millennia, in fact, you come to this passage in Isaiah 7, and you find again that Jerusalem is at the center of international conflict. And this is written two and a half thousand years ago. This is 750 years before Jesus came along. But again, it's the same thing. Jerusalem as a city is a central piece, a central player in this big conflict that is raging all around it. Different circumstances, of course, to what you find today, but still the same old theme emerges. In this time and place that Isaiah 7 is written in, uh, Jerusalem is the capital city in the nation of Judah. Now, Israel as a nation was split, not quite in half, but in two pieces at this time. And it had the northern nation of Israel, which kept the name Israel, And you had the southern nation of Judah, much smaller, in the south. And Jerusalem sat within that nation of Judah. And so what used to be one nation, God's people, Israel, had become fractured and split in two. And not only was it split in two, but these these two halves of the nation didn't get on with each other at all. In fact, it was outright conflict. It was outright war. By the time you get to Isaiah 7, you've got Israel in the north threatening war, threatening to attack. Judah in the south is, is threatening civil war between God's people, which is a, a complete tragedy given this is the nation God has called. This is the nation that God has chosen. This is the nation God has been journeying with. And now the nation's fractured and divided and it's on the brink of civil war. That's the situation that's going on here. So Israel in the north wants to conquer Judah in the south. And the way that it goes about doing this is by aligning itself with another nation. So Israel co-opts the nation of Aram to help it. It allies itself with Aram, and these two nations together figure they're going to have a go at Judah, and they're going to try and conquer Jerusalem and take the nation of Judah out. And ruling over Judah at the time is this guy, King Ahaz. And when he hears that Israel is planning to attack him, the king of Israel, along with the king of Aram, he's absolutely terrified. He's petrified. And his response is in verse 2, The hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So Ahaz is absolutely petrified that he's going to be attacked, that Jerusalem's going to be ransacked, that Judah's going to be destroyed and wiped out by its, its northern neighbors. And it's into this situation that God sends the prophet Isaiah with a message for Ahaz. And, and really the prophecy that Isaiah gives here, it's good news. It's good news for Ahaz. And Isaiah comes along and says, Ahaz, you don't need to worry. Don't lose heart. Don't worry about it. This catastrophe that you're worried about coming from the north, it's not going to happen. 
These two nations, they're just little smoldering stubs of firewood. They're not going to affect you. Don't worry. It's just a matter of time, and they'll be wiped out. They'll be no more. So this disaster that you're fearing, this great threat that you're fearing, don't worry about that. It's, it, it will not come to pass. So Isaiah is trying to reassure King Ahaz that everything's going to be fine and that God's in control and he doesn't have to worry about the threat from the north. But Ahaz, at the end of this prophecy from Isaiah, Ahaz doesn't say anything. He doesn't respond, which is a bit of a worry. So Isaiah carries on. And he says, ask the Lord for a sign, Ahaz. Ask God for a sign that what he said is true, that he's going to protect you, that you're going to be okay, that this threat will not materialize. Ask whatever you want to ask for, Ahaz. You just ask God for a sign. And then Ahaz's response comes in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that, that can sound on the face of it very pious, very super spiritual, as if Ahaz is kind of saying, I've got so much faith, I don't need to ask God for a sign, I don't want to test God, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't need that kind of thing. In fact, when you look at it, it's actually the opposite. Ahaz doesn't want to trust God. He doesn't want to put his faith in God. He doesn't want a sign. He doesn't want to follow God. In fact, what he wants to do, you read from other passages, what Ahaz really wants to do is he wants to rely on another nation to try and help him, the nation of Assyria. So he tries and allies himself with Assyria to try and get their firepower, which is a terrible idea because Assyria was one of Judah's worst enemies. But he's just acting out of fear. He's just acting out of, out of absolute terror at what's going to happen, and he makes this foolish alliance that just comes back to bite him down the track. But he's got no interest in putting his faith in God at all, despite this assurance that God gives him that the threat is not even real. And so Isaiah carries on then and says, well, if you don't want a sign... Um, tough luck. You're going to get one anyway. God's going to give you a sign, Ahaz. If you don't want to ask for one, here's the sign that God is going to give you. And here is the key prophecy in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, that verse is actually quite controversial. There's a lot of debate around this verse. And in, in fact, it's a verse that skeptics of Christianity seize upon to try and disprove the idea of the virgin birth and try and debunk the idea that there ever was a virgin birth of any kind. To illustrate this, let me play you a video. I think we've got the video here. This is a, this is a clip from one of my favorite TV shows of all time, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. It's about 10 years old now, but it was a great show. And in this clip that you're going to see, just a short clip, but you'll hear the characters talking about these various myths to do with Christmas and debunking these myths around Christmas and the nativity story, including debunking the so-called myth of the virgin birth. Okay, You probably can't see it very well with the light, but the main thing is to listen to the audio. Let's give it a go, Murray. Thank you. How come your peers decided to look like Doug Henning? It doesn't matter. Shepherds don't work in December. Another expert theologian heard from. Yeah, the Gospels say he was born during the reign of Herod the Great, and according to the historian Flavius Josephson, Herod died in 4 BC. Flavius Josephson. The Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. I think it probably does. In describing Mary, the original Hebrew text of Isaiah uses the word Alma, which refers to a young woman of marriageable age, not the word Bethlehem, which means virgin. And you're getting this on? Virgin birth debunked. Okay. Dot org. Excuse me. See, Lucy, <clears throat> I'm a bit of an astronomy buff. 
Loser. The word is loser. They count. All right. <laughs> uh, so, just a brief clip. But I, I, don't, I don't actually think the uh, website virgintobirthdebunked.org actually exists. But anyway, just in case you want to try and find it. But what you heard that guy there say was the Hebrew word for that's translated virgin in this passage doesn't actually necessarily mean virgin. And that's true. That's actually quite true. The Hebrew word that's used there is the word alma, and it simply refers to a young woman of marriageable age. That's quite right. In fact, in a lot of your Bibles, if you look there, you'll see a note in the margin uh, that gives you the alternative translation of young woman. Could be translated virgin, could be translated young woman. The word itself doesn't specify whether or not the young woman is a virgin. It just talks about a young woman of marriageable age. And so people seize upon this and say, there you go. Look, the Bible's just, you know, it doesn't say anything about a virgin birth. This is just a bunch of Christians got overexcited and made up doctrines and made up stories. But this isn't talking about a virgin birth at all. Now, this is where we've got to come back and look at this passage in its original context, because what we want to do is take these words and apply them straight to Jesus. But we've got to remember, in the first instance, this is a prophecy that takes place in Isaiah's day. This is a prophecy that concerns events in the time of King Ahaz, 750 years before Jesus. So we've got to start there and understand this in its own time and its own place. And in its own context, this is not a prophecy about a virgin birth. Okay, I know you're looking at me like I'm a heretic, but in its own context, all right, I'm not denying the doctrine of the virgin birth in relation to Jesus. We will get there, okay? I promise you, we'll get there. We'll land the plane eventually. But in its own context, first and foremost, this is not a prophecy about a virgin birth. It's simply a prophecy, Isaiah is saying, there's going to be a baby who will be born. He'll be born to a young woman, and that baby is going to be a sign. And the sign is Emmanuel. That beautiful word, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it means. And that means that God will be with his people, in this case, Judah. He will protect them. He will look after them. He will keep them safe. He will ward off this threat. He'll protect them as long as they trust in him. And so the question is, if this baby in the first instance is not Jesus, who is it? And there's various theories on that. It's quite likely that the baby Isaiah is talking about in the immediate future is his own baby, his own child. In fact, if you look in chapter 8, the very next chapter, Isaiah has a child. Isaiah and his wife have a baby. And that baby becomes the fulfillment of prophecy. So it's quite likely that in the first instance, this is not actually talking about the virgin birth of Jesus. It's talking about this baby that will be born to Isaiah and his wife, who will be assigned to King Ahaz. That before that baby grows up, before that baby can tell right from wrong, these two nations that are threatening Judah, they will be wiped out. And that, and that happened. That took place. Before this child was about 12 years old, these, these nations that threatened Judah, they ceased to exist. So this is why we're going to come back and understand biblical prophecy in its own context first. This is about a baby who is a sign to King Ahaz that this threat will not happen. And what's important here is really the way that Ahaz responds, that rather than responding in faith, rather than responding by trusting God and saying, yes, I believe in what God is saying through Isaiah, and I'm going to trust him for this, he just continues to respond in fear. He responds by being terrified and petrified and continuing to make silly decisions like aligning himself with Assyria, acting out of fear, acting out of this very human response to the situation rather than acting in faith. That's what's going on in the original context of this passage. 
Now, with all that in mind, I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 1, and we will see where this prophecy eventually leads. It's really important that we do the work in the original context first before coming across to see how it works in the life of Jesus. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, here is where this prophecy is then quoted in the New Testament, and we see the fulfillment. In Matthew chapter 1, 18, we have the story of Joseph, the husband of Mary. At this time, he was just the fiancé of Mary. And Mary has become pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And Joseph's really not sure about all this because he doesn't know whose child this is. He knows it's not his child, but he doesn't know whose baby this is. He's very dubious about the whole thing. You've got a young woman here who's pregnant outside of marriage. It's a scandal. Joseph's idea is just to quietly separate from Mary without any uh, great fanfare to try and preserve Mary's dignity. And so he just, he just plans a sort of an exit strategy for himself. But an angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew adds in verse 22, Matthew 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew's quoting there right out of Isaiah 7 the prophecy around the birth of Jesus. It's slightly more complicated because Matthew is writing in Greek and Isaiah in the Old Testament written in Hebrew. And so Matthew's following the Greek translation of Isaiah. And in Greek, that word for virgin there is the word parthenos. And it still means a young woman of marriageable age. It does carry a slightly stronger connotation that the woman is a virgin but still means a young woman of marriageable age. And so it's correct to say that in terms of that particular word, it's not conclusive. If you just lean on that, if you just put all the evidence on that one word, the word virgin in Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1, that word does not conclusively prove the doctrine of the virgin birth. But in a way, that is neither here nor there. Because if you just look further up in the passage, Matthew is is very explicit about the fact that this was a virgin birth. He says in verse 18, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Matthew makes it abundantly clear that this was a miraculous conception. In fact, Matthew knew that just quoting Isaiah 7 wasn't going to be conclusive, so he wants us to know this was miraculous This was a virgin birth. So if you want to argue about the doctrine of the virgin birth, you can argue about it on other grounds, but don't argue that the Bible doesn't support the idea. Don't argue that it's not in the Bible and it's not, you know, the word doesn't mean this or that. It's right there in Matthew 1, and Matthew makes it abundantly clear that the birth of Jesus was a virgin birth. This was a miraculous conception. But that's not actually the point of the prophecy, of course. The point is that Jesus fulfills the sign of Emmanuel, God with us. He Just as this child in the Old Testament was Emmanuel, Christ has come as the fulfillment of that prophecy, Emmanuel. And it means that the prophecy in Isaiah 7 has what we call a double fulfillment. And you find this all the time in biblical prophecy. We've seen it before, that the initial fulfillment of that prophecy was in this child in Isaiah's own day, this baby that was born, perhaps his baby or someone else's, that was the sign of Emmanuel, that God was with his people, and now Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment of that sign, Emmanuel. And of course, Jesus means God with us in a far more significant way than this baby in the Old Testament. That baby in Isaiah's day meant that God was with his people, supporting his people, helping his people. But Jesus means God God is with us in the sense that God has become incarnate among us. 
God has become one of us. God has taken on our flesh, our human nature, the fullness of our humanity. God has stepped into all that we are, and he's taken on the fullness of who we are. That's what Jesus means by being Emmanuel. And so Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, and he fulfills it in a far greater and deeper and richer way than the prophecy in Isaiah's own day. And then you look at how Joseph responds to this at the end of that section, at the end of chapter 1, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. And so here's Joseph, even though he doesn't understand everything that's going on, even though he still would have had, I'm sure, many, many questions about all this and didn't know how all this was going to work out, he placed his faith in what the angel had told him. He placed his faith in God. He trusted beyond what he could see, beyond what he understood. He trusted in what God had told him, and he stepped out in obedience. He believed the angel, and he took Mary as his wife. So when you step back from all this, you look at Isaiah 7 in the Old Testament, and you look at Matthew 1 in the New Testament, you've got these two men in the Bible who, on the face of it, don't seem to be connected at all, but they are. You have King Ahaz in the Old Testament, and you have Joseph in the New Testament. And both of these men received the sign Emmanuel. All right, Isaiah gave the sign to King Ahaz. This baby is going to be born. He's received the sign of Emmanuel. Joseph receives the sign Emmanuel in the New Testament. But the way in which these guys respond to that is completely opposite. Ahaz responds in fear, not believing what God has said. Joseph responds in faith, believing, trusting, obeying what he's been told. Both men received the sign of Emmanuel. Each man responded in a completely opposite way. Ahaz responds in fear. Joseph responds in faith. And the two responses of these guys, they kind of draw us into the story, don't they? Because they, they raise the question for us, which one are we? Where do we see ourselves in these stories? Are we more like Ahaz? Are we more prone to respond out of fear, out of disbelief, out of lack of trust? Or are we more like Joseph? Are we more prone to respond in faith and belief and obedience to what God has said? Which person do you identify more with in these stories? Because we've received the sign, too, of Emmanuel. I mean, just as they have. Emmanuel was not just for Ahaz. It wasn't just for Joseph. It's for us as well. We've heard these prophecies. We've heard these promises that a child be born and he is Emmanuel. And we know that Jesus was not just Emmanuel 2,000 years ago. He wasn't just with us when he lived on earth 2,000 years ago. He is with us now. He is with us today. He is with us here in this room. He's among us. He's teaching us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. He's filling us. He's empowering us. Jesus is just as much Emmanuel with us today as he was 2,000 years ago. So we've got to decide how we're going to respond to this. We're going to respond like Ahaz. We're going to respond like Joseph. We're going to respond out of fear to what's going on in our lives. We're going to respond out of faith to what is happening in our lives. This is a choice we've got to make, and it's a choice we've got to keep on making. Every day of our lives, faith or fear, faith or fear, all the time we're facing these situations. I remember when I was a young adult, I was, went as a leader on a ski camp for kids. So we had this group of primary school kids came down to Ruapehu for the week. 
on a ski camp and there was a bunch of us leaders that were keeping an eye on the kids for the week up and down the mountain, keeping an eye on them while they were skiing and boarding and so on. And there was a boy who arrived at the camp with a note from his mum. I can't remember whether it was a psychological condition he had or a medical condition or whatever it was, but this boy had a condition where he had no comprehension of fear. So he had no ability to know when he was in a situation of danger. He didn't know where his limits were. He couldn't perceive a threat at all. And so you have to question why the parents are sending this boy on a skiing trip on a volcano. But here he is, and he's in our group now with no comprehension of fear. And so up the mountain we go. And all week we're kind of keeping an eye on this this kid just to see what, what was happening. And one day he was in my group, and I was taking the kids down the mountain for lunch. I skied down about 10 meters ahead of them, and then I had each of them just come to me and line up, single file. And one by one, the kids all skied down, and we created this nice little line. And this boy, when it was his turn, he just skied down and just kept going straight past the group, (laughs) down the trail, disappeared over a bank. And I just thought for a minute, oh, we've lost him. What's happened? I quickly skied down to where he'd gone over. Thankfully, it was only about a two-meter drop. Uh, and he'd landed on a rock, so he'd done himself a bit of damage, and he was screaming away, but it wasn't too bad. And the rest of the week, we kept an even closer eye on him after that. But no comprehension of fear at all. And you think, like, in some ways, that would be amazing, and in some ways, that would be a disaster to have that kind of condition, you know. Fear is a good thing in a lot of ways. Like, our fear instincts are really healthy. They trigger that fight-or-flight response in us that we need so we can perceive danger and we can respond to danger. But I think for a lot of us in general... What we tend to do in our lives is we live on the other side of the spectrum and we get overwhelmed by our fears and we allow our anxieties and our uncertainties and our fears, our apprehension around situations to control us and we become dominated by those fears. I mean, you think out towards next year, what's coming for you down the track next year? Some of you are facing an uncertain year with work. You don't know what's happening with your job or maybe you do know what's happening with your job. It's not there. And so you face this uncertainty, and maybe you face that anxiety around that. You look out there, and it just, it's very uncertain. It may fill you with fear. Some of you look out towards next year, and you see a really uncertain future financially. That financial stability that you, you, were, you were trying to achieve is just not there. You feel uncertain and uneasy about what your financial future is going to be next year. Some of you think about relationships that are really rocky at the moment, that maybe are just starting to fracture. And you look towards next year and you think, I don't know how this relationship's going to get through another year. I don't know how we're going to hold this family together. I don't know how we're going to hold this marriage together or this friendship or whatever it is. You worry about that stuff. I mean, some of you may even just be looking towards Christmas Day with fear because you're going to be in the room with family members that probably should not be in the room with each other. And you've got to figure out how you hold that together. And that, I mean, that's, there's real anxiety in that for some people because it creates real family difficulties and can be appre- there can be apprehension around that. And these situations, you can sort of look out and it just kind of feels like storm clouds are gathering sometimes in our lives. And that stuff can fill us with fear. And we can, we can find ourselves then acting out of fear and acting out of this anxiety, this place of anxiety, rather than a stable and a settled and a, and a restful kind of place. And this is where we need to come back to this, this beautiful word that really is at the heart of the whole Bible, Emmanuel. It's so simple. We've heard it so many times. I think we almost miss the meaning of it, the depth of it. But this is the, really the greatest promise in Scripture that God is with us. He wasn't just with us back then. He is with us now, not just in a general, generic sense, but He is with you 
personally, specifically, individually, the God who breathed out the stars has breathed his presence into your life. The God who descended onto Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning and cloud, he's descended into your life personally, presently. The God who filled the temple in the Old Testament with his glory has filled your life with his glory. He's filled your body with his presence. The God who filled the body of that little baby boy 2,000 years ago has filled your life with the presence of Emmanuel. The God whose presence filled the disciples at Pentecost and rested on them with tongues of fire has filled your life and filled you with the presence of his Holy Spirit permanently, abidingly. We are filled with the presence of God. We have Emmanuel. And that should make a difference in our lives. That should enable us to trust in God and act out of faith rather than out of fear. Because God is with us. That should make a difference in our lives at some point, shouldn't it? It's not that God promises to fix everything. It's not that God promises to give you clarity about everything. It's not that God says, well, whatever it is you're worried about, I'm going to take that thing away, or I'm going to show you exactly what's happening. God doesn't promise to fix everything in our lives. He promises us something better. He promises us himself He promises us the gift of his presence in the midst of what you're facing. And he says to you, I may not take that thing away, but I tell you what, you and I are going to face it together. You may not know what's happening next year, but I do, says the Lord, and we will face it together, me and you, hand in hand. In fact, God has gone ahead of you into that future. God's already there. He's already inhabiting what you're not sure about. And he's welcoming you into that future because he's made it a safe place for you and you don't need to worry about it. He's not going anywhere. He's with you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to neglect his promises. He's right beside you, and he will be the whole way. He's Emmanuel. We need to trust in that. That's the basis on which we can have faith in him. And it's not just faith for the future. It's faith for what is right in front of us right now. That decision between fear and faith, we're constantly making it. We are at that intersection moment by moment in our life, fear or faith, fear or faith. I went and got a haircut this last week. You might have noticed. And <laughs> the place I go to in uh, Birkenhead, it's this kind of slightly gangster barber shop place, and, um, which is not me at all, but it's this kind of young, trendy place. And this, there's a young guy that's just started working there. And the previous time I went in there, he was cutting my hair, and we just kind of struck up, struck up conversation, and he asked me what I did, and I said I was a pastor, and usually that is a conversation killer. You almost guarantee that's the end of the conversation. The conversation dies an awkward death right there. But this guy kind of mulled that over for a couple of few seconds, and then he said, have you ever read the book of Revelation? And I was like, yes, I have. Yes, I have. My favorite preaching series ever was the book of Revelation. And so he was like, well, have you, what do you think about the number 666 in Revelation? What do you think about the beast of the earth? What do you think about that? Like, he just got all this information. I don't think he's a Christian. He, he certainly doesn't seem to have a personal faith. But his dad was some kind of Bible teacher. And so he's just absorbed all of this information, particularly about Revelation. And so there we were in the middle of a barber in Birkenhead having a conversation about Revelation. It was the most random conversation. And then this time I came back, got the same guy again. And this time, the conversation got a little bit more personal. So we were kind of talking about where he was at. And just I was gently trying to just probe that a little bit more. And he was talking about 
church. I think he'd been to some church a couple of times, and he just said he wasn't that interested and couldn't really be bothered with it and so on. And so I felt like I faced this intersection because I didn't really want to say anymore. Like, I felt quite awkward. There was a guy sitting right next to me, and the other barber cutting his hair, who's a Muslim guy, and I'm very aware of this whole scene. But I just, I just felt like I had to say something. I just felt like this was a moment to say something. And so I gritted my teeth and said, you know, the really important thing is where you personally are with Jesus. You know, not so much the church thing that's really important. I work for a church, but where, it's where you are with Jesus. And I said, you know, if, if, you'd, if you'd like to come along to a church sometime, you know, you're welcome to come along to our church and told him where it was. And he kind of ho-hummed about that and didn't really pick up on it particularly well and went off on some other tangent. And then at the end, I kind of circled back and said, do, do you have a Bible at all? Because that's a great idea to read the Bible at times, and that's the main way God can speak to you. And he did. He had a Bible, and I think he thought about maybe reading it. And then the conversation kind of tapered off, and I paid for my haircut, and off I went. I might see him again. I may not. But I, I just share that story with you to say that for me, that was very much an intersection of faith and fear right there, like just everyday life kind of thing. No, not, not a big decision, not a kind of fearing the future kind of thing, just in that barber, I face the decision between faith and fear. And I mean, I would rather, to be honest, fly under the radar with that kind of stuff. Like, I don't really, I'm, I'm not a natural evangelist. That stuff doesn't pour out of me like it does for some other people. But I felt this was really more about, well, at least as much about what God was doing in my heart in that moment as it was about whatever he might have been doing in that guy's heart. And God was bringing me to that point. And in a sense, I, I didn't have this passage in mind right then, but in a sense, it was like God saying, are you going to be Ahaz? Or are you going to be Joseph? Are you going to respond in fear? Or are you going to respond in faith? And the difference was Emmanuel, that God was with me. He was with me in the middle of a gangster barber in Birkenhead. And if he's with me there, he's with you anywhere, right? If God can inhabit that kind of place, he's with you wherever you spend time, wherever you're going to hang out. He's with you. What I'm saying is that makes the difference, doesn't it? Knowing and believing and trusting in that moment, God is with me. I can speak up. God is with me. I can lean into this and not away from this. God is with me. I can take that step of faith. Big step of faith, little step of faith, doesn't matter. You'll, you'll encounter these moments all along the way. And the difference for you will be, do you really trust in the promise of Emmanuel? Are you really going to take hold of it in that moment? Believe God is with me. The power of heaven is with me. The God of creation is with me. And not just with me, within me, filling me. And if God is with me and God is for me, who can be against me? Right? That should enable us to have some courage, to have faith, and to trust in the God who gives us this unbelievable promise that he is with us. So I just pray for you that that one special word in Scripture, Emmanuel, that it really comes alive for you over the next couple of weeks particularly as we journey towards Christmas Day. And you'll have heard that word, and we sing about that word so often, but I, I pray that word would just be bro broken open with new life for you. And you take hold of that promise. It's a promise for you, not just for Ahaz, not just for Joseph, for you. Emmanuel, God is with you. Wherever you are, wherever you go, whatever this week brings for you, God is with you. And I pray that would give you, in the first instance, a deeper appreciation of who Jesus is as the fulfillment of that amazing prophecy, God with us. And then I pray that it would breathe faith into your life. And that when you next stand at that intersection, 
between fear and faith, you would choose the path of Joseph, the path of faith, not the path of Ahaz, the path of fear, because God is with you. Emmanuel. Let's pray. God, we pray that the, the truth of Emmanuel would shift from just being something we know in our heads to being something that captures our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that through all that the next couple of weeks will hold for us, Lord, in the busyness or in the loneliness, whatever it may be, that we'd be mindful that you are right there with us. In the midst of whatever we do, no matter how big, no matter how small, that you are with us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the, the, the ability to trust in you for whatever the future holds, the ability to step out in faith when you're prompting us to. Lord, the courage to obey you even when it's hard. And we pray that we would be guided by that wonderful assurance that in all things you are with us and you are for us. God, we thank you that we don't need to pray that you'll be with us because we have that promise in Scripture that you already are. You'll never, never leave us, never forsake us. So help us simply to lean on what is already true, that you are there, you're our constant companion and our guide. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.